0: If you're visiting with us today, a very warm welcome. I extend my welcome to you. Here at Pakenham Church, we, we take seriously the proclamation of God's word. And at the moment, we're working in a series through the letter of Philippians. And we'll be looking at a portion of the scripture that has been read today. We started this particular portion last week, got part way through it, I like can assure you we'll only get part way through it again today, and, uh, but that's a, that's a good thing, because I think it's, it's good to stop and pause and just see what God's Word has for us. Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank uh, those of you in the congregation who were praying for us yesterday. As um, you may be aware, we were at an elders' retreat for the day up at uh, Mill Valley Ranch, and it's actually my first time I've been to Mill Valley, and what a, what a beautiful spot. A wonderful place to to convalesce, but we weren't convalescing. We were working hard, and so so thanks for your prayers. And um, it was a, a rich and uh, a very um, meaningful time together. And um, you'll see the fruit of that as as we go forward in the year. Uh, so thank you for your prayers. One of the key questions that I have for you this morning. As for all of us, is what makes you full of joy? What makes you rejoice? You see, you might be uh, joyful when you finally get the freedom of having your own car and a license to drive. It may be when you complete your schooling and you have that degree in your hand. It may be when you have that dream job or that dream husband or wife. Or it actually might be as simple as when you you may be completely joyful when your kids leave home. Or you might be joyful when your mortgage is finally paid off. Right. All these things may cause you to rejoice, to be joyful. But all these things are circumstantial, right? Your joy will last but a fragment of time. Yeah, see what if if, if you crashed your car, lost your license, You were caught cheating through your process of schooling because you were using AI for all your answers. So they stripped your degree off you. What happens if that that dream job, the, the company, goes into bankruptcy? What if the kids don't leave home? You know? What if uh, you're in debt to the, the final day of your life? Will you still be joyful? You see, joy is not determined by our circumstances, joy is actually determined through our relationship with Christ. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And being a fruit of the Spirit, it's something that develops in our life, day after day, night after night. Because joy and contentment go hand in hand. Rejoicing and thankfulness go hand in hand. And this is a a fruit Of the Spirit. Do you remember when you were a kid? I don't know if you did it here, but we did definitely back in New Zealand. We used to sing the song "Joy is the flag flying high from the castle of my heart." I'll translate that for you: "Joy is the flag flying high from the castle of my heart." So now you know what I'm talking about, right? Where the King is in residence there, because that little song is 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 framing a picture that joy comes from the fact that King Jesus is resident in our lives. This morning we've read this uh, paragraph of Scripture in, in Philippians 1 and we're discovering that Paul possessed this wonderful and deep conviction and attitude of joy even though he was imprisoned, even though he was incarcerated, even though it was perceived that he couldn't do the things that he wanted to do. And this attitude of joy is, is clearly the foundational fruit of the Spirit working in and through his life. See, it didn't matter to Paul what his life circumstances were didn't matter whether those circumstances were good or challenging, joy was the fruit because of his relationship with Christ. He wasn't anxious about his circumstances, or doesn't seem to be anxious about his circumstances as we read through this text, particularly. He made no excuse in pursuing his. Goal or his calling, and his calling was to advance, to defend, and to confirm the gospel. We get that right through the first chapter of chapter one of Philippians, right? 112. He says his circumstances are there to serve to advance the gospel. He says his imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 15 tells us that he is put there, or actually that would be better translated, he is appointed to be there for the defence of the gospel. And further back in chapter 1, verse 7, we see once again the affirmation that his imprisonment is for the defence and confirmation of the gospel. That's his goal And then we have this overarching attitude of joy amidst his circumstances. And his attitude of joy was underpinned by his view on life, as will unfold today. We know these verses well. And you see that in Paul, he states, I don't care if I leave this earth, and I don't care if I stay on this earth. Whether I remain or depart is of no consequence because my deep-seated joy and rejoicing is because I'm in Christ. See, his view of Christ and his view of being in Christ shaped his philosophy of life. And this is so instructional for us, right? As a believer and as a follower of Christ, if you've, if you've taken that step of faith, then part of the transformation process it should be ongoing in your, your life and heart Is the biblical worldview that um, life is in God's hands? Your life is in God's hands. And when you have that view, it shapes your prayers. When you have that view, it shapes your circumstances. When you have that view, it shapes your attitude and uh, you'll see the the flourishing of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. See, Christ's promise of eternal life and belief in Christ that um, one day Paul would be in his eternal home shaped, motivated and fueled. Paul's life and discipleship. And we get a glimpse of this in this chapter. Have you noticed how deeply, I hope you guys have been reading through the book of Philippians. Who's been doing that regularly? is a it tremendous as you, as you start flooding through the book and, and you, you start seeing the key themes coming through? But what you'll notice is it's deeply personal. This is a deeply personal account from Paul to these believers. And... Uh, You get a real glimpse into his heart and his theology of life. So, what we have, we started this last week, and I'll just briefly, very briefly, overview. So, just to bring us back into context, you see this principle in verse 12 that though Paul may be in chains, the word of God is not imprisoned. That's his mantra. Yeah, I might be here, I might be chained, but it's really serving to advance the gospel. The word of God, the gospel, is not imprisoned, even though I might be. What a wonderful attitude that is, right? It takes every opportunity to to proclaim the beauties of Christ. We also saw that last week that um, a result of his imprisonment was these two things, that outsiders know why Paul's imprisoned, the whole imperial guard got to, got to hear the gospel and to respond one way or the other. And the second result was that believers were emboldened emboldened to uh, share and speak the word of God without fear. They looked at Paul's example and says, well, if you can do that while you're chained to a guard in prison then we can be bold in the, in the marketplace. We can be bold in our homes. We can be bold in amongst the society that worshipped Rome. Remember we talked about that in the background many many weeks ago, that this particular city was very Roman. They had temples to, to Caesar and they had guilds set up And really, you couldn't do anything commercially without being part of a guild. And part of the guild was to worship Caesar. So the livelihoods of these very Philippian believers would have been affected because their allegiance was no longer to Caesar. Their allegiance was to Christ. And as they viewed Paul's imprisonment from afar, remember Philippi is up north of Greece, and um, Rome is some distance away. There was a confidence and boldness that was exemplified in Paul's life that was encouraging others. That's part of body life, right? This way we encourage one another when we see. Truthful proclamation of the truths of Scripture that creates a boldness that we may not naturally have, but the Spirit uses that so so we can be emboldened to serve Christ. And then we come to the section here where it's quite unusual, right? Because Paul makes this comment that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and others from goodwill. Those who preach Christ um, from goodwill do it out of love, knowing that he was put there or appointed there for the defence of the gospel. Those who preach out of envy and rivalry proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition and not sincerely. And in effect, actually, they think it's going to afflict Paul more ways in prison. So if this was you, and you saw this, what do you think your response would be to these two forms and types of preaching? I think Paul's response is amazing. Here. He um, he really is only concerned that Christ is proclaimed, and that's what he rejoices in. He rejoices in this fact. he believes by saying this that the content of what has been said is correct. Right. So the content of their message, whether it is those who are doing it from goodwill or those who are doing it of envy and rivalry, is obviously true. So it's not the content that he's concerned about, but he's concerned about the motive of the heart. Here. But overall... Whether in pretense or in truth, as long as Christ is proclaimed, then Paul rejoices. It's quite amazing, isn't it, when we think about that across denominational grounds. Where Christ is proclaimed, we should rejoice. Yes, and I know there's false gospels out there. Yes, and I know there's there's certain... Teachers that we would consider are false teachers and, and they need to be shunned and need to be called to account. But if Christ is being proclaimed, then we should rejoice. And that's the heart of Paul. It's interesting, I was, I was reading and I came across this quote, and I thought this was a fantastic quote about preaching, about preaching the gospel. And this person said, I go out to preach with two propositions or true truths in mind. First, every person ought to give his life to Christ. Second, whether or not anyone else gives him his life, I will give him mine. Isn't that a wonderful view? Yes, I'll go out and preach. with the view that I want everyone to give their life to Christ. But if they don't, then I'm certain and sure I will give him mine. So it means to rejoice in preaching Christ. Let me come to the next section here in verses 18b through to 20. And it's the most complex sentence in the entire letter. So we're just going to pause, and we're going to take some time to unpack this sentence. And we might this might be all we do today, because there's some deep truth sitting in here, which I think we need to understand. So what has happened is as Paul has just uh, declared to the saints at Philippi what the present effect of his imprisonment is, verses 12 to 18. And this causes him joy because the gospel is being advanced. The gospel is being proclaimed. So that's his current circumstances. Now he turns to future circumstances. He turns to the future to, to reflect on the expected outcome of his Imprisonment and trial. Remember, last week we looked extensively at Acts 28, uh, the time there where he's in Rome and he's he's awaiting trial. Well, he's writing from Rome, awaiting trial, and, and in the context of what he's writing here, that's his immediate future. What is going to happen? What is going to be the outcome of this trial? And even for his future, this is really fascinating, even for his future, it's also a cause for joy. Notice how the verse starts, or the middle of verse 18, right? Middle of verse 18, you, you have this, you know, as long as Christ has been proclaimed, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice is the next phrase in the same verse. And he starts looking to the future. For I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. It's a long sentence. And there are some key things that we need to consider here. You know Paul's future and his cause for joy about his future is because he expects deliverance, or expects vindication, or salvation for himself and the gospel from the imprisonment that he's in. And he also, if you a little bit later in chapter one, verse twenty-five, you see that he is convinced and that he will uh, be released and find his way back to Philippi again. So that's his future expectation. And he frames uh, the, this, this expectation with two key phrases in this sentence. This I know will turn out for my deliverance, and my eager expectation and hope. Those are two key, key phrases through this sentence that he unpacks for us. See, most of the content of what is seen in verse 19 and 20 is all about what Paul knows and what will happen to him. And the key phrase here is, what will turn out for my deliverance? It's really interesting in our English translations we've used that word deliverance because the the Greek word there is... uh, Soteria. Soteria is where we get our English word salvation from. So you can see deliverance, salvation, you yeah, of similar sorts of things. And um, so that, that's, that's the, the translation that we're, we're wrestling with here. And uh, what we have here with this particular phrase, I know what will turn out for my deliverance or salvation or vindication is a direct quote from Job. So whenever you see a direct quote from the Old Testament, it's always good to go back and, and try and wrestle with that context. So why did, why did Paul use that for us? And uh, So we'll go back to Job. you got your Bibles. Head back there. What do you know about Job? we know Job was under great suffering right great persecution we know that Job was um, under an incredible test of trial and we we come to um, Job chapter 13 and uh, we see here that Job 13 contains one of the more, I guess, poignant moments of Job's speeches. This is one of his speeches. Where he shuns the perspective of his comforters, right? Remember he had three comforters that kept on giving him advice about why he was in the predicament he was in? I don't ever want comforters like that. Okay, and... Um, because these comforters were insisting that his present situation is a result of his hidden sin. That's what uh, Job's comforters were continually telling him. You must have sinned to have all this calamity caused upon you. But Job knows better. And he pleads his cause with God, and he does this in chapter 13. And By doing so, he displays his hope in God and pleases innocence before God. And if we read, uh, let's go, read 13. We'll read verse 13 through to... Yeah, just a little bit. Let me have silence and I will speak. So this is Joe speaking. "And uh, And I will speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life... In my hand. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case, I know that I shall be in the right. It's Job's plea to God. Verse 16, there, this will be my salvation, is the quote that appears in Philippians 1 19. This will turn out for my salvation. And in Job's situation, salvation is about vindication. Okay? Job means, I know that I will be vindicated. Why? Because firstly, the godless can't stand before God. And secondly, that his appearing before God shows that he is righteous and is able to um, appeal. And he's crying out for vindication here. Vindication against the evils that are upon him. And it's the same with Paul, I believe, here when he cries out that he's asking that his imprisonment will turn out for his deliverance or for his salvation or for his vindication. You know, pragmatically, he just could just be saying, I want to be out of prison, but I think it's deeper than that. I think the context shows us that this is Paul's cry for eternal salvation and vindication. And this salvation and vindication will happen no matter what happens, whether it's life or death. That's what he prefaces the the sentence with. And he's talking about the whole affair, the whole lot of his present circumstances and being imprisoned and and, um, he wants this salvation. He wants to be redeemed. And he wants God's vindication that the gospel won't be maligned and the gospel will magnify and honour Christ, which we also get later in the, in the, in the verse. Verse. So in effect he's saying, I want this whole affair to turn out to my ultimate salvation and present vindication when, through the prayers of the saints of Philippi and the supply of the Spirit of Christ, his earnest expectations and his hopes are realised and that his trial um, not only will others be put to shame but in a very open and bold way, he will be able to magnify Christ in every way, even if he is given a life sentence to death. That's his heart. And it's interesting here that this clause of salvation He also cries out for the prayers of the saints and he also cries out for the supply of the spirit of Jesus to aid the process. So it shows his total dependence on Christ and God's spirit. He understands that... um, He's not there as an individual. He's there as a representative of the body of Christ and he cries out to the body of Christ to support through prayer. And he's totally dependent on the Spirit's power to answer the intercessory prayers of his people. You see, the church, folks, is is a wonderful place of encouragement. Or it should be. <laughs> you know, state, state the fact that it should be a wonderful place of encouragement. Where well, we have the privilege to intercede on behalf of one another, we have the privilege to pray on behalf of one another. And sometimes I think we've missed that in our individualistic culture and society. One of the key beauties of the church, of the fellowship, of meeting together, is that we can be on our knees before the Creator on behalf of one another. That was Paul's cry. That's a challenge for us, right? How often this past week have you stopped and you have prayed for other brothers and sisters in this congregation, and prayed with earnestness that the Spirit of God will rest, reside in them, and transform them? Okay, this is the key part. Of this prayer. And uh, you've got to know we're not alone. The church body is a body designed by God for a purpose that we can be encouraging. And praying for one another. The church is God's bodybuilding program for his saints. Okay? And prayer is a cornerstone of that. It's interesting that uh, Paul uses and asks that the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ be upon him or help him. And uh, it's an unusual term, it's not used any. Hardly anywhere else in Scripture. I think it's used in Romans. If you go to Romans. Romans chapter 8. 9 and 10 tells us this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. It's the only other time we see this sort of combination of, of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, relating to the Spirit of Jesus. And uh, Paul instructs in Romans this, this wonderful fact that you're not in Christ unless you have the Spirit of Christ. You're not saved unless the Spirit of God has regenerated you and the Spirit of God dwells within you. And the reality is that final deliverance and salvation or vindication, whatever term you come up with there, is not going to occur without the Spirit of Christ within you. And uh, that's the point he's making here. The second major clause in this particular sentence from verses 19 and 20 is this. And Paul states, My eager hope and expectation. Or my eager expectation and hope, actually. And he states three things. That he won't be ashamed, that he be filled with courage and boldness, and that Christ will be honoured or magnified. I'm astounded. We talked about this yesterday at the elders' meeting. That Paul would even say, "I don't want to be ashamed." We just, you know, for the last few weeks we've been reading through the boldness of Paul, the the, the way he just continually proclaims the good news of Jesus, and and yet, in his own humility, he knows his own frailty, and what's one of the the things that he asks for, that he won't be ashamed. That should be really encouraging for us, right? Because we too can be crying out and saying, Lord, help us not to be ashamed. Help us not to um, trust in the promises of God. I was not to proclaim the promises of God. This word ashamed here normally carries the sense of disgrace uh, as in a failure to trust God. And uh, so he's praying that, he's crying out, "I, I, I don't want to be ashamed, I don't want to be misaligned with the truth of the gospel, I don't want to be misaligned with proclaiming Jesus. And if Paul can do it, We also need to take note of that, right? We need to be asking for boldness. We need to be not man-centred and worried about what man will say, but Christ-centred. And hope here doesn't mean a, a wishfulness But it's more like a hope-filled expectation. When you look at most times in the New Testament, when the word hope is used, its hope is um, is in the sense of the highest degree of confidence and certainty about the future. The highest degree of confidence and certainty about the future. That's what hope means here. Not wishfulness, but hope-filled expectation. And it's that whole mantra, of, God has promised it, then it will be fulfilled. And that's what your hope is in. It's a, a sure thing. And that's where Paul is asking by eager expectation and hope. Not to be ashamed and filled with courage or boldness. And this courage and boldness uh, means to be outspoken or plainness of speech. This courage and boldness means to conceal nothing and pass over nothing. It's about openness in the public square. It's about being bold in speech, and that would be a better translation. My eager hope and expectations that I will not be ashamed, but be bold publicly in speech. Now as always, so that Christ will be honoured. See, the goal here for, for Paul is that Christ will be honored. Or well, like some English virgins that use the word magnified. That Christ will be magnified. Because magnification is to, to hold something in great esteem and in high regard and, and to praise the deeds and to exalt and to glorify. Speak highly of. And that's his desires. Hope and expectation is that Christ will be magnified through his actions. Whether by life or by death. It's pretty weighty, right, when you start considering these verses. And I just want to challenge you to be thinking through this, we we won't go any further on today, but where does your joy lie? What do you rejoice in? Paul says here, I'm going to rejoice in the future, no matter what that future will be, but I know there are some certainties in my future. He says, I know there are certainties that the Spirit of God dwells within me and will guide and transform me. That's the same for you and I. The Spirit of God dwells within us and guides and transforms us. That's a certainty. A certainty is that the intercessory prayers of others are important in the process of being transformed and being gospel-centered people. So that's a challenge in itself. Who are we praying for? Who are we getting to know so we can pray for them intelligently? How active are we embody life to really support and encourage one another and um, be dependent on prayer? And he rejoices because he knows that whatever happens it's going to turn out for his deliverance or salvation or vindication. Same for us, right? We walk this earth. Some of us will get 50 years, some of us will get 60 years, some of us will get 70, some of us will get 80. We have a lot of time that God gives us. Our days are appointed and ordained by him. Don't forget that. You know that? You can't add a day or a minute to your life. (laughs) It's ordained by God. It's a wonderful hope. And he has work for us to do in that process. And and one day we will be delivered out of this mortal body. I'm thankful for that. The older I get, the more thankful I am. Young folks might think, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm healthy. It doesn't last. All right? And the reality is that we have a hope beyond the here and now. We have a hope that we'll either be called up to meet our Saviour in the air or if we pass away that our dead bodies will be reunited and resurrected. And don't ask me the tough theological question, what age will I look in heaven? Because I have no idea. But we know that we will be granted eternal life. And then we have the eager expectations and hope here. We all need to be praying that we won't be ashamed. Especially in today's culture, how often are we mute when we see things uh, that are against the things of Christ? Even just pure blasphemy in the workplace. You know? Someone blasphemes, why don't we just turn around and say, oh, do you know Jesus? Let Let me explain him to you. Or how would you like me to curse the name of your grandmother? Whatever it might be. Um, We need boldness, not to be ashamed. And we need full courage to speak openly and boldly. It's what Paul hopes and expects. And not for our own self-importance, but so that Christ is... Magnified. That's the key. Magnifying, honouring Christ with our lives. Magnifying and honouring him with our lives. There's a whole sermon on that. And how that should look. But we will stop today and leave you with that challenge.